Next up, we have Matt from Milliman speaking on pricing, flood, and severe thunderstorm. Matt is a consulting actuary in the San Francisco office of Milliman, one of the world's largest independent actuarial consulting firms. Matt's expertise is in the pricing of cat risk for primary insurance companies. He has developed highly granular pricing algorithms for hurricane and severe thunderstorm perils. Most recently, he has been developing pricing approaches for private flood insurance. Welcome, Matt. Thank you. So it's uh, great to be here in South Africa to be able to talk about uh, flood and uh, hail and uh, development, recent developments in the United States uh, in terms of pricing these uh, perils and uh, some of the potential applications here in South Africa. Um, th this talk basically is going to be divided into two parts, the first part on, on flood and the second on, on hail. And each of those I'm going to start by sort of going through a, a case study or an example of something we've done in the U.S. and then uh, just uh, not going through a full case study for South Africa, but just sort of hinting at how it could be used here. So first, a little bit of background on flood in the United States. Uh, in the U.S., uh, flood is primarily done through a government program called the uh, National Flood Insurance Program, that, which was developed in the late 60s due to a crisis in the market where flood insurance was unavailable. Historically in the U.S., uh, flood has been considered, largely considered to be an uninsurable peril uh, and has not been offered privately, although there have been some exceptions to that for particular niche markets. Um, the NFIP offers uh, flood insurance using flood zones. Um, this is not a very granular uh, method. Uh, primarily, it's based off of estimated frequency. So that's either, uh, you're either in a, a high-risk zone of where there's a 1% annual chance of flood, or you're not in that zone. There is a little bit of additional refinement, but that, that's basically how it works. Um, so uh, this is not an approach that's uh, really, I think, suitable for, uh, uh, for a private market, um, although in other countries such as Germany where they have the ZER zones, there are four uh, ZER zones in Germany where they also have a private flood market, uh, is also not very granular. Um, but this is now changing in the U.S. Uh, there's a lot of interest in developing private flood, uh, even though everyone has had it drummed into them from uh, for, for decades that uh, flood is uninsurable, now everybody doesn't think that anymore, and uh, I, we, I've talked to many uh, companies that either have, uh, are in the process of developing flood or uh, private flood programs or are interested in developing private flood programs. Um, this is, is being talked about a lot, and uh, I think within the next several years, uh, the whole market's going to change in the U.S. And so, uh, since we're going from a, a system where it's really a a government-run program that is, is spectacularly unprofitable with uh, tens of billions of dollars of debt uh, to a private program where we, we certainly hope that's not going to happen, uh, we need to develop a, a better method. And uh, that, that's what I'm going to be talking about today. So uh, in order to, what's changed? Uh, why uh, can we now uh, do private flood insurance in the U.S. when we for so many years thought this was impossible. And what really has changed is the computational 
power has increased to the point where we've where there are catastrophe models that can, uh, with some accuracy, estimate uh, what the expected losses are at a at a very granular level, um, down to as, as a resolution of as small as 10 meters. Um, so, uh, a catastrophe models a, a computer model uh, that estimates uh, expected losses. Um, I've done uh, pricing work using other catastrophe models, starting with hurricane um, and uh, uh, severe thunderstorm and, and earthquake, and now uh, moving on to uh, flood. So one of the key questions for any area when, when you're doing this is which perils are their models available for? Uh, you, you can't price flood just off of historical experience because uh, there is insufficient experience at any given location. Um, and, and since I'm in South Africa, uh, I wanted to mention what, uh, what perils I've at least been able to find uh, that are available here. There may be others that I'm not aware of, but uh, JBA, based out of the UK, has a, a flood hazard maps for South Africa, uh, as does Intermap, uh, based in Colorado. Um, Equicat, based in Oakland, California, has a straight line wind model. Uh, I have not found a hail model. There, there may be one that I don't know of, but there are some methods that can be used in the absence of uh, cat models for hail. Uh, that wouldn't work for flood. So uh, just briefly here, uh, I have to talk about geocoding. Um, I'm not sure how widely adopted that is. Here is uh, essentially universal in, in the cat-prone areas of the U.S. Um, geocoders uh, return a latitude-longitude uh, based on an address, and uh, for any uh, pricing exercise where uh, you need a great deal of precision, um, geocoder is extremely important, um, and their quality is continually increasing. Uh, for the, f the flood peril is pretty much the most granular peril that exists. Uh, hurricanes pretty in the U.S. is pretty granular, flood far more so. So uh, you really, in order to be able to price flood, in my opinion, uh, you need to be able to geocode addresses, figure out exactly what their latitude and longitude is, and uh, it, you, you need to at least have a street level match. Um, the way geocoder, geocoder works is first it takes an address People can be amazingly creative in terms of how they uh, give an address for a location. Uh, if you've ever done uh, data QC on this, it's, it's really amazing. Um, so uh, what the geocoder first does is it normalizes the address. So you could, you could uh, for example, say uh, main street, spell out street. You could do ST. You could do ST period. There, there are lots of different ways. So the geocoder normalizes it so that it's standard. Um, then it returns a latitude and longitude for that location. And that uh, latitude and longitude can be a varying uh, levels of data quality. Um, the best would be a point level match or a rooftop match where you have the exact location of the building. Uh, somewhat, you know, worse than that, but still fairly good, would be a street level match. Uh, that's typically done via interpolation. So, for example, if, uh, you, if the geocoder knows the latitude and longitude of 100 Main Street and 200 Main Street, if you're at 150 Main Street, then it estimates it as you being halfway between those two locations. Uh, so that's um, not quite as good, but for many purposes may be adequate. Uh, if it can't uh, get back at what I would describe as a good match, uh, then it falls back to a postal code level match. Um, that's 
typically available. Uh, that could be a result of somebody uh, having an address and, and typing it in a, in a way that it can't be normalized. Or uh, very often, if there's a new uh, housing development that it may not yet be in the, the geocoder and could be added later, that would give you a postal code level match. For some purposes, that may be, may be fine. Uh, for flood, I, I don't think it would be. Um, and, and the reason for that is that you would, um, there's so much uh, variation in risk within a postal code that you would be subject to adverse selection if you uh, uh, price just using postal codes. So there are uh, three methods that are currently being considered and, uh, and, and, and being used in the United States for pricing flood. Uh, I've spoken to different companies that are, that are using each of these three methods. So there's no consensus about what the best way to do, do this is at this point. Um, the first uh, method is to query the CAT model at quote time. So in, in this case, what you would do is you take the latitude longitude, you would actually, at quote time, provide it to the CAT model. The CAT model would return to you an average annual loss, you would gross it up for expenses, and you'd produce a rate. Um, in this case, there's no, there would be no uh, published rate in a manual. Um, and uh, it, it, would, it would just happen in, in real time. Um, a lot of people are not willing to do, do uh, this approach. Uh, there are regulatory constraints in some cases. Um, it's uh, also not very transparent. Uh, it, it's, very, it's as black boxy as it comes where you, uh, you, know, you get back this AAL and you have no explanation as to why that AAL is what it is or why that premium is what it is. Um, but this is an approach that, that some people are taking. The advantage of the approach is that it is as close to what can come from the CAT model as, as uh, anything can be. And so if you believe that the CAT model is the most accurate estimate of the expected loss, then that may be the approach you'd want to take. The second approach, which is the one that I've uh, spent the most time developing, is uh, manual rates using GIS lookups. So in this case, there is an act, would be an actual manual with a set of base rates and rating factors um, and, and uh, that you could publish, that you could give to insurance agents. And um, it's a transparent method because you'd be able to see exactly why the, the rate that's produced is, is, um, is, is the rate. Uh, what makes this possible is the ge geographic information systems uh, look up because because of the granularity of the flood flood the flood peril um, you could not again as I was saying you could not give a rate by postal code that that would not work um, in my my view but what you could do is you could have a rate by postal code with various modifiers that would that would uh, get you the granularity that you need I'm going to be talking about this uh, option in a lot more detail here in the next few slides um, the third approach, which is one that ha has been adopted by a number of companies in the U.S., mostly because it's relatively easy and quick, <clears throat> is to use a simplified rating system but to, that, that really isn't accurate enough and then make up for it on the underwriting side. So, for example, uh, companies have copied the NFIP rates and, but undercut them by 20%. Since the NFIP rates are inadequate to begin with, undercutting them by 20% makes you even more inadequate. Uh, but the, and the way that companies are doing this and, and, and hopefully uh, doing so profitably is by putting underwriting rules on the back end so they're not willing to write any risk. They're only willing to write the ones that they are, believe are profitable at those rates because 
the very non-granular NFIP rates have a great deal of uh, cross-subsidization built in. And so you can cherry pick. So this gets into uh, the second method, the one that I've uh, spent most time uh, working on. Uh, and this is going far beyond uh, a flood zone approach like the NFIP or the Zero Zones in Germany. Um, <clears throat> in, instead of just having uh, a zone where you're in or out of the zone, this gets to essentially continuous rating. Um, so you, you, you start off with a base rate um, based off of something like what in the U.S. is called hydrological units. These are catch, catchments or drainage basins. Um, and then in addition to that, you'd have uh, a bunch of rating factors for things like elevation, relative elevation, distance to river, stream, distance to lake. Relative elevation is um, probably the only one that isn't obvious what it is. Relative elevation is the elevation of where you are uh, minus the average elevation around where you are. So if you're on the top of a hill, you'd have a positive relative elevation. If you're down on the bottom of a gully, you have a negative relative elevation. And this turns out to be one of the most important rating variables, not surprisingly. And, and so uh, the advantage, of, a couple of the advantages of this approach is um, that the, the different rating variables here have a strong physical logic to them. It makes sense that if you're higher up, that you're going to have lower risk. If you're lower down, you'll have more risk. If you're near a river, you're at greater risk. They make logical sense. They are to some degree model independent uh, because they're physically based. And uh, there are also things that can be easily explained to insureds or insurance agents. Um, and they are things that insureds tend to know. And so uh, if you're concerned about adverse selection and that the, the insured maybe knows they're at the top of a hill or, or, or at worst, at the, the bottom of a hill, they know they're, um, uh, they're high risk and they're, sort of, they're more likely to buy the insurance. Well, you're pricing for that and so you're less likely to be adversely selected against. So um, the, the question then is how do you set all of those uh, rating factors, those rates and rating factors? Um, and you start with uh, output from uh, a flood cap model. In the U.S., it's um, a little more complicated because we have several kinds of flooding. Uh, there's basically uh, three. There's a storm surge that's typically generated by hurricanes. Uh, there's fluvial flooding, which is rivers, and there's pluvial flooding, which is uh, heavy rain where the, the rain uh, pools uh, and, and doesn't run off quickly enough. Um, the uh, storm surge is, is probably the most important in terms of dollar loss in the U.S., uh, but not in terms of uh, the area affected uh, because it's only areas right on the coast that tend to be hit by hurricanes. In uh, South Africa, the fluvial and pluvial flooding would be important, but not the storm surge. So I picked an example here to run through where uh, the, the there wouldn't be any storm surge, it's just pluvial and fluvial flooding, um, so that it'd be more relevant uh, to you. Um, so in terms of the cap models that we use in the US, there are storm surge models uh, produced by the major vendors like RMS, AIR, Equicat, um, and again, I'm not gonna talk about that today. Uh, there are also, and this is what's just recently come online, it, there are uh, models for uh, fluvial and pluvial flooding. Uh, the, one of the main vendors there is a company called CatRisk, based out of Berkeley, California. Uh, AIR, based out of Boston, has uh, recently developed uh, a uh, model for uh, non-storm surge flooding as well. And RMS is in the process of developing one. It's an area of active work for pretty much all of the cat modelers. 
<clears throat> Once you have an average annual loss from, from a cap model, wherever uh, you get it from, then the question is how do you set your uh, rate, rates and rating factors, and the approach that I take, uh, took uh, is to use a generalized linear model. Um, in this case, I did this for the state of Florida, um, and I used five million locations uh, corresponding to every uh, single family parcel in the state of Florida. Um, and, uh, but uh, I'm only going to, for, to show the results for Okeechobee County, uh, and that's because if I showed it for the entire state, you wouldn't be able to see what was going on. It's, uh, again, very granular, so we need to zoom down to a level where you can see uh, what's happening. Uh, Okeechobee County has some of the highest flood risk in Florida, and that's why I picked it. Uh, there are various factors other than lo location is, is definitely uh, pretty much the most important thing for flood, but there are other things that matter too. Uh, number of stories, how elevation the first floor, in many cases in highly flood prone areas, people have elevated their houses above ground level and that makes a huge difference in terms of flood risk. Uh, foundation type, is it on stilts, does it have a basement, um, that sort of thing. Uh, deductible and as well as contents coverage and loss of use coverage. Um, there are a couple of different ways you can uh, price these different rating factors. This isn't going to be the focus of what I'm talking about, but there's a couple of different ways you can do it. For something like number of stories, one approach would be to actually do the analysis separately for one story and two story houses. Um, the other way you can do it is you can just put these in as uh, predictors in your GLM and use that to, to create rating factors. So this is Okeechobee County. Uh, it's just north of Lake Okeechobee in southern Florida. Uh, and I'm showing here the National Flood Insurance Program flood zones. This is the, the government flood zones that are currently in use. Um, you, there are, uh, I said there are just a couple of different zones. That, that is true in terms of the way things are being priced. Um, X and X500 are treated the same uh, for pricing purposes. Um, a and AE are the ones that have at least a 1% chance of flooding um, per year. Uh, the AE ones are ones where uh, they have created something called base flood elevations or, or BFEs. That's the elevation at which you would expect a 1% chance of flood. So uh, that, in that area, the, uh, they do, the pricing does take into account elevation to a certain degree. Outside of that area, they don't take it into account at all. And you can see that in uh, the map, the areas that are red are the AE areas. And it's a relatively small portion of uh, the county. Uh, <clears throat> the orange areas are the A areas. They have at least a 1% chance of flooding, but, but elevation is not considered in pricing in any of those areas. And the remaining area, the sort of, I don't know what it looks like on the screen for you, but it looks uh, kind of grayish uh, to me. Uh, that's an area that is, has less than a 1% chance of flooding. Elevation is not considered. There is a flat rate. So um, this isn't a great rating plan. It's, it's going to very likely lead to adverse selection. And so um, this is why uh, we need to develop something different. Uh, this is, this uh, map shows uh, notional locations based on parcel data. So we again have uh, the parcels for every single family house in the state of Florida. And we've uh, put a notional location at the centroid of each parcel, run it through a cap model, and got back an average annual loss for each location. And these are color coded here. So you can see that the, the locations are not uniformly distributed. They're clustered, which is typical in terms of where people choose to build their houses. 
And, uh, and there's a lot of variation in, in uh, what the expected loss is. Some areas are very high, some areas um, much, much lower. Um, what we want to develop is a way to be able to price any location. This map shows uh, hydrological units or, or what are called sub-watersheds. These are drainage basins where all the area um, water uh, flows uh, from, a, from a single point. Um, this is uh, what's called HUC-12s in, in the US. And, and basically, you would expect that they would have um, similarity because the water uh, is flowing within in that area. So it's a natural way, uh, unlike, say, postal codes, to group areas together. And so th this would be a uh, basis for establishing uh, base rates. You could have a different base rate for each uh, hydrological unit. And so I've, uh, when I did this analysis, I took the, the, the AAL for each of these locations, and I used as my predictor variables, hydrological unit and elevation, relative elevation, all these different things that we've been talking about. And that produces a, um, an AAL that's then grossed up for expenses, and then that gives me a base rate. And so you can see um, here what the base rate would be by hydrological unit. The area immediately adjacent to Lake Okeechobee is relatively high risk. Uh, other areas are lower risk. Um, keep in mind that because this is being done with a GLM, this is after adjustment for distance to river, distance to lake, elevation, relative elevation. So that d this is not the final premium or the final rate. This is after you adjust for those things. So, so yeah. This uh, map shows uh, regular elevation, elevation relative to sea mean sea level. Um, the, not surprisingly, the, the lower areas are the areas bordering the lake. And Florida is quite flat, so the, none of the elevation differences here are all that big. But um, it, the area in the northern part of the county is about 40, up, to, up to 40 meters above sea level, while the area on the lake is at sea level. Um, and uh, hopefully you can see uh, the graph that shows the relative average annual loss. So this is, a, uh, this is the rating factor that came out of the analysis. Um, and you can see that if you're at very low elevation, going up a bit helps a lot. And then as you get higher up, going up more helps less and less, which makes intuitive sense, I think. And so then this map shows what would be the <coughs> the rating factor uh, for uh, Okeechobee County. So if we just sort of compare these two maps, this is the actual elevation, and then that's the rating factor. And so the difference between these is here, um, there's a lot of, for Florida at least, a lot of variation in elevation. Here what's going on is the relativity varies a lot in the area right along the, the lake. And then as you go farther from the lake, um, it doesn't really matter that much where, where you are. Even though the elevation is varying quite a bit, the relativity isn't because the relativity curve flattens out for higher elevations. Then this map shows relative elevations. So this is a layer that we built. Um, we started with an elevation layer and then we constructed the relative elevation layer by taking uh, the average, the average uh, uh, elevation for a, in a small circle around each location and subtracting the average uh, elevation over a larger, uh, a larger circle. 
Um, and so this, is, this really gets at, like, are you on the top of a hill or are you down in a gully? Even if you're 40 meters up, if everything around you is 60 meters up, it's still not a good location to be in. And you can see in the, um, the graph here, this really makes a huge, huge difference, especially if you're at negative relative elevation. Going to positive relative elevation where you're higher than average is good, but it doesn't make that much of a difference. If you go to negative relative elevation, it makes a huge difference. If you get down to negative 20 meters, which is a very unusual situation, um, that doesn't happen very often at all, uh, then your risk increases by a factor of 18. Because um, if it rains, you're, you're going to get some flooding. Um, in the, the, the color coding here, you can see the yellow is area that's within half a meter of being um, at average elevation. So that's basically sort of the neutral uh, uh, relative elevation. And then the green is the, the hills, and the red tends to be along the rivers. That, that's areas that are, are lower down. And so then this uh, map shows what does, that what does that translate to in terms of relativities. So the, again, the areas that are uh, low-lying are red here, and they have um, their their rate would be increased by a factor of of two to to four, um, and then the areas that are green um, would would get decreases. Uh, this one may be a little hard to see the map, but basic Florida is filled with lots of little lakes, thousands and thousands of little lakes. So um, in this map. Almost everywhere is green, meaning it's not that close to a lake, but there are hundreds or thousands of like very small lakes that you could potentially be near. Be near. Uh, being right on a lake is, is bad from a flood point of view, but, if, but being just a, a little bit away from it makes a big difference. So if you're 20 meters away, you're, you're probably fine. Um, but if you're uh, very close, then it's a problem because the, the, the graph here, you see, drops off very quickly. Um, this map shows distance to river um, and the relative loss there. That, there it, uh, it drops off much more slowly than the, than the um, distance to lake because of the fluvial flooding. Uh, as, as you, uh, when you, you get a, a strong rain event, the, the flow increases in the rivers and they overflow their banks. And that's, that's a much uh, bigger effect than uh, with the lakes. Um, so it's again, on the, on the map, it's a little hard to see because at this scale, um, being even you know, uh, hundred meters from the river, you're you're pretty much okay. Um, but if you're within that small distance, then it does make a difference. And and although it's again hard to see on the map, it'd be very important for in actual pricing because uh, people know if they're on a river, and if you aren't pricing for that, then they're going to take advantage of it. So this uh, map combines all of the previous maps I just showed you. It takes the base rate by hydrological unit, multiplies it by the factors for elevation, for relative elevation, for distance to river, distance to lake, and comes up with an overall average annual loss. Um, and for most of the areas, it's, it's relatively low, um, but there are some areas that are, are higher. Um, and you know, using this approach, you can then price any location in the county uh, regardless of whether or not you had a notional location there uh, when, you, when you ran it through the CAT model. And again, this is something that you could put in a manual. You could have a list of hydrological units where you could say this is the base rate, these are the, the factors. In practice, you would have to do a GIS lookup um, through a computer system in order to be able to determine for this particular address what is the elevation, what is the, 
relative elevation, what is the distance to river, but, but it would be something that would be very transparent. You could explain to the insured, to the insurance agent, uh, the reason I want to give this person a higher price is because they're 10 meters from a river and their relative elevation is negative, negative five meters or whatever it is. So then uh, some validation. Uh, I did this using a, uh, a training holdout uh, approach. And so uh, these next few slides are univariate uh, comparisons of the estimated uh, AAL uh, using the model versus the actual AAL on the holdout sample. Um, so this first one is distance to lake. Again, as we saw, it, it is bad to be near a lake, but the, the, uh, the uh, risk drops very, very quickly, and the, and the estimate and the actual are, are relatively close to each other. This is the similar uh, graph for distance to river. Uh, being right on a river is even worse than being right on a lake. Uh, this is elevation uh, versus sea, sea level. And again, they follow each other relatively closely. This is uh, relative elevation. Um, they, it does diverge a little bit at, at the lower relative elevations, but that's an area where there is uh, very, relatively few locations. Um, the, actually, the large majority of locations are within a meter, plus or minus a meter of, of zero. Um, so by the time you get down to these lower ones, uh, you, you have a lot fewer locations, and so you expect that they're not going to line up totally perfectly. And uh, this is a, a lift curve. So I've um, taken on the holdout sample, I've uh, taken the uh, predicted AAL and, and rank ordered it and broke it into deciles and then looked at what's the actual versus the estimated uh, to see how much, uh, how, how basically how well this is um, managing to distinguish the risk. And I think it, it does a, a quite good job. Um, the, the lift is, uh, looks like about uh, 14 to 1. So uh, it's successfully identifying the high risk areas and the low risk areas. So that's the end of the first section to, to discussing the Florida example. And now just want to sort of uh, whet your appetite here with uh, some uh, South African example. Um, this is, uh, shows the quaternary drainage regions. Um, this data is uh, freely available. Um, and this would be equivalent to the hydrological units that I was using in Florida. So you could set base rates for each of these quaternary drainage regions. And then I'm going to go through uh, uh, some examples for three different locations in South Africa. This isn't going to be a full analysis where we get rating factors. It's just going to sort of show you how you would set it up. So this is Cape Town. Uh, each of the three examples here are areas where there's a river, and so there's danger of fluvial flooding as well as the fluvial. Um, so this is Cape Town with uh, and the river, and uh, I have uh, the 1,500-year flood depth um, for, as produced by JBA. Um, they also have uh, flood depths at other return periods, but this is sort of the most extreme one. So uh, the way this would then work is you you wouldn't do this analysis with the and, and this is why I haven't completed it. I, this this is one return period. Uh, in order to complete the analysis, you need uh, average annual loss by location, not just return period. So to do that, you take the, um, you need, they have multiple flood hazard maps, and if they then uh, linked those together and provided an average annual loss, then you could feed that in to, um, to this analysis. But uh, I think this should give you a good idea of how it works. Here I've uh, determined distance to river in Cape Town. Um, 
One thing is, if you remember from the Florida example, uh, really everything interesting is going on within 100 meters of the, of the uh, river. So here I'm showing distance to rivers much greater than that, but really the only area that matters is like the area that's red. You just if, if I did the colors that way though, you wouldn't be able to, to actually see anything on this map. <clears throat> Elevation is very important uh, as we've seen. For South Africa, you can get uh, elevation from the shuttle radar topography mission, SRTM at 30 meter resolution. That's freely available, um, downloadable. Uh, it's a very large file, but, but you, can, you can get that. Uh, Intermap has, uh, my understanding is that they do have a 10 meter resolution DEM, so you can, you can get um, uh, something that's a higher resolution, but that does cost money. Um, so th this is showing, this is the SRTM elevation. Uh, on the right. I created a relative elevation map um, based off of the SRTM uh, elevation data for Cape Town. And so you can see the areas that are, are um, elevated versus the, the ones that are, would be more likely to get the um, pluvial flooding. Then the next couple, and, and I know we're running a little late here, so I'm going to just uh, zoom through these. Uh, it's the same thing for just two other areas. This is Durban and Port Elizabeth. So Durban, again, 1500 year flood depth, distance to rivers, elevation, relative elevation. Again, you can see uh, that the low, the low relative elevation tends to be not like exactly at the river, but somewhat near the river. Um, and then you've got some higher areas that are over, have ele relative elevations over 10 meters, which is, would be very low risk. Port Elizabeth, again, flood depths, distance to river, elevation, relative elevation. So again, you could you could set these up as rating factors and develop a, a flood, a flood plan. Um, so that that's uh, what I had to say about flood. Um, so I'm, the next portion of my talk, I'm going to talk about uh, pricing severe thunderstorm. Uh, the that's an important peril in the U.S. Um, there are basically three sub perils. There's tornado. Uh, hail and straight line wind. The most important one it depends on where you are, but is generally hail. Um, and I think that's the, also the case here, that hail is the most important uh, peril. Um, and so it, I think there's some relevance. Uh, so I'm going to go through what, in a couple of examples I did uh, in the U.S. And, um, and, and how that could be used here. Uh, hail is very different from flood. Uh, it's not very granular. In the case of uh, flood, you have to use GIS. You have to get down to what's the elevation of this specific point. The, the, the risk could be completely different 20 meters away. That's generally not the case with hail. You can use pretty large territories, and, and that's fine. It's just important that those territories follow what the actual risk is. Um, it, and so one of the implications of that is it means you don't necessarily need to use GIS. For flood, you do. Uh, for uh, severe thunderstorm, you could use postal codes. That would, would probably be a reasonable approach, at least in the U.S., where the hail risk is mostly in areas that tend to be very flat anyway. Um, I think it might be slightly different here. So uh, what I started with here was the average number of hail days per year, as estimated by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. They uh, took uh, observations and used a kernel smoothing technique to create this, this map. And then I use that as, as our starting point. Um, you can see uh, that there's this huge bullseye right in the center of Oklahoma. And then it, it, the risk decreases as you go farther out. But it has sort of different shapes um, in, in different areas. So uh, one thing that people had been doing 
uh, to price uh, risk was using things like counties, um, which tend to not have really the right shape. Um, and so uh, this, although you can use large territories, it's important that they follow the contours of the risk. So the first thing I did, I start with this map, and then we digitized it and interpolated. Um, if you, back on this map, this is just showing the, the number of hail days in integral amounts from, from zero through 10 hail days per year. Um, but you may not necessarily want your uh, territory boundaries to be at the points that they have on this map. So we digitized it and interpolated. And so for any location in the United States, we, can we have an estimate of what the number of hail days per year is. And the purpose here is we don't care about hail days per se. What we care about is grouping things that are similar together. So this enables us to group things that are similar together and to make the breaks wherever it makes sense. So um, I'm gonna, the first thing, analysis I'm gonna show here is for Oklahoma, which is again where the bullseye is. So this is a, a territory set that we developed for Oklahoma, and it has the, the shape that you see, saw on the previous map. It, it looks like a bullseye. This is, this is very different than the way people are typically constructing territories based off of counties, which are usually rectangular, and you get something that looks very different, and so you're not grouping things that are alike together. Here you get these sort of weird-looking territories that are sort of annuluses or annuli, um, where you're grouping things that may not be that close physically uh, to each other, but have similar risk. And uh, the, some of these uh, territories have relatively narrow width, um, and uh, that's why we had to do the interpolation in order to be able to, to make them that small. And then there's a was a validation process where we used cat model data. Once we, everything I've said so far, wasn't using any cat model data. Then you can calculate what's the average severe thunderstorm loss um, in each of these territories. And what you would expect to see is that it should be monotonic. If it's not, then you've been too aggressive in, in building your territories. So this is just a little bit of a different example, and the same idea. Um, here, this is, uh, if we go back here, um, the color scheme is different, but this makes, makes it look like everything that's going on is really in the Great Plains, which is the area of highest risk. But it makes you think, oh, well, you don't care about this if you're, if you're anywhere else. It's not really true. People care about hail a lot in the mid, Midwest. And um, in this map, which shows uh, six states um, in the Midwestern US, um, this different color ramp, you can see there, there is a lot of uh, variation, actually, um, between western Iowa, that's at highest risk, and, and, and northern Michigan, that's lowest risk. Basically, in the U.S., the risk varies southwest to northeast. As you, you, in the southwest has the higher risk. As you go to the northeast, it, it goes down. So um, one thing you could do, if you, you know, uh, based on what I've been saying in my talk so far, you might think, well, what I want to do is I want to, uh, to choose different hail day frequencies and make territories based on different breaks. And you could do that. That, that would make perfect sense. But companies may not uh, want to implement a GIS approach for something like hail where you don't really need to and it's a lot of programming. They might prefer to just use postal codes. And since, as I was saying, uh, hail is not very granular, so that's a reasonable thing to do. So the next few slides, I'm going to show how you can do this with just postal codes instead of GIS. Um, so the first thing, you, if, you, if you have um, cat model data, 
uh, from a sphere thunderstorm model um, for your an actual portfolio and uh, you do a GLM approach similar to what I described for flood, you'll back into factors uh, by, uh, by postal code. And you can see here that it looks very similar to uh, what I showed from the NOAA data. So I'll just go back. So here's, this is from NOAA data, in, interpolated hail days. Whoops. And then this is uh, from a CAT model. And they show the same pattern, which they should. If, if uh, this is describing what's going on, it, it, they should be similar. Um, now, you can't really set your territorial relativities or even uh, or create your territories directly from this because you can see there are lots of gaps. If it's a real portfolio, there are going to be lots of places where there aren't any policies. Um, so uh, what you can do then is interpolate to fill in the uh, postal codes that are missing. Um, that, and now you can really see, once you've interpolated to fill in the missing um, postal codes, looks very, very similar. This is from two different data sources, very similar. Um, you will notice, if you're looking carefully, there are some anomalies, like in uh, the western part of Iowa on the far left, there's a little green spot amidst an area of, of red. Um, that's because uh, this is if you if you take something with real data, you might have one location, and that location is different than you know, and and is creating an anomaly. So you don't want to replicate that when you get to actually building your territories. Um, the next step on this would be a, doing a clustering algorithm to uh, create territories where you're um, you're uh, maximizing the. Um, uh, minimizing the within variance and maximizing the between variance. Which you, so um, <laughs> maybe I've been going a little uh, <laughs> too far here. <laughs> I promise we're almost done. Um, this is uh, the uh, hail territories that you would then get from from uh, that approach, um, and these are uh, rating factors for each of those territories. So you've now have developed territories for hail that you could price just using postal codes. And then this is, I think, the last, my last slide is uh, non-geographic rating factors. Um, in addition, I mean, geography is important, but there are other things that matter. Uh, construction type, year of construction, number of stories. Uh, number of stories is an important one because if you hail damages the roof, if you uh, have a some multi-story structure for a given amount of value, it has a smaller percentage of uh, roof area and therefore it's lower risk. And um, you know you can price the other uh, uh, coverages in, in, in that way. One last slide. This is uh, my slide for South Africa. Um, there is a company uh, you, you would in order to do this in South Africa, you would need a number of um, hail days. You can get that from companies like Weather Analytics. Uh, and then determine the implied risk, similar to what I did in the Midwest, and then group uh, those areas to form territories. Uh, there's an interesting paper by LaRue and Olivier um, from about 20 years ago that uh, argues that in South Africa, elevation has an impact on uh, hail risk as well as uh, the uh, region. And so uh, in in South Africa, it, it, you might need to, in addition to constructing these territories, also um, use an elevation factor uh, 
and, and that would, you, it would be possible to determine that using data from weather analytics or possibly company data if you have enough of a volume. Uh, and then from that you could then set, create your territories and then set the relativities in the absence of cat model data, set the relativities based on your historical losses. So, that, so now we can take a break. <laughs> if you have any questions, I'd be happy to answer them. Hi, it's Martinez from Alturance. I'm just uh, curious, with rate filing being quite common in the States, do you find that uh, flat rating converge a bit? Because it's normally, once you bring in more differentiation, the rates tend to spread out. So this is, um, I mean, this is very recent developments in uh, the US. Uh, people have only started working on this within the last year or so. Um, in most cases, uh, for flood, um, the, the more complicated things haven't been uh, filed yet. Uh, they're still being developed. Um, I think that once they get filed and approved, and, and the, I didn't really discuss the changes in the regulatory environment, but the regulatory environment is, is changing, and um, there's a lot of encouragement to write private flood. Uh, for example, in the state of Florida, which is probably one of the more important ones, uh, you're able to, you don't have to get rates approved for the next four years, I think it is. You can just, you have to file them, but it doesn't require approval. Um, so that gives people a lot of flexibility. Uh, over time, I think that this will, uh, I mean, this is going to result in cherry picking. The NFIP is going to uh, end up with the worst risks, um, and there's going to be a lot of uh, a big move towards a lot of rate differentiation. It's going to have to be. Thanks. Thanks, Matt. That was excellent, I think. Uh, a simple question. Just the relative elevation was fascinating to see. Um, what kind of difference do you see the two circles? Um, so the larger one was at three kilometers by 500 meters, or what did you find gave you a relatively good match when you tried to determine the relative elevation? Yeah, that, that's a good question. So uh, we looked at a the way we did it was we looked at a bunch of different possibilities to, for the two different circles um, and determined which one uh, gave us the best match. Um, eventually, we, uh, I think it was 100 meters for the, for the first circle and two kilometers, I think it was, for the, the second. Thanks. Thanks, Matt. Thank you.